the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, the Finance Coast and Mohammed Nala. Together, we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets. In addition to our weekly free show that you know and love, we have now launched Magic Markets Premium, a weekly show for our subscribers in which we give detailed analysis on global stocks. Every premium show is accompanied by a report covering the company's strategic drivers, its operating environment, its competitors, bull versus bear case, technical trading indicators, and a long-term investment thesis. At just 99 Rand per month, we are committed to making institutional-level analysis affordable for all investors and traders. Visit magic-markets.com to go premium and unlock your full potential in the markets. Welcome to episode 79 of Magic Markets. It's a double header of just Mo and I. It was just us last week and we spoke about some of the stuff we've learned in Magic Markets Premium, which uh, we really enjoyed and touched on some of the companies there. And this week we are doing something completely different. So what we said to each other was go away and think of three questions that we want to ask each other. So it's three each and I think it's going to be uh, really fun. I'm quite excited to see what Mo's come up with. And uh, yeah, let's have some fun, Mo. Yeah, it's always a pleasure doing this with you. And yeah, let's have some fun. I think sometimes also, you know, just to take some of those left field questions. And I could always say to people, you know, can you tell us the real reason why you hide your face? Can I actually release pictures of you on the internet and we can have a big laugh about it? But I I think let's rather steer away from such ghostly thoughts and let's focus on stuff that's at least a little market related. So I'm going to go first just because I can. And Mo, the first question is this. Uh, As I've gotten to know you so very well over the past couple of years, I mean, we knew each other for years before that, but nowhere near as well as we know each other now. Something I'm well aware of is that you are quite a perma bear at heart. You do like to sometimes believe that things could go wrong more than they go well. And that's part, I think, of what makes you attracted to gold in your portfolio, just as, as part of it, you know, as an underpin in it, which many will tell you is good from a theoretical perspective as well, just some diversification of asset class. Out of interest, gold recently should have done really well. We've had a war, we've had inflation, we've had all the stuff that is textbook gold bug stuff, and gold has done well, okay. I mean, to be honest, it's done a lot better than equities, which is maybe all one can really ask for, but I don't think it's shot the lights out. So my first, this is a two-pronged question in true, uh, you know, pretending I'm a US analyst style, always got to sneak in an extra one. The first one is, have you seen anything recently that has changed your overall bullishness on the shiny metal? And then secondly, something you've always said to me, and history has proven you correct, is rather buy the commodity than the mine. And I'm curious to know if that is still your view. Gosh, you had to go there, right? I think the first opening question, gold, uh, I think it's valid, right? Uh, going back to your initial sentiments of if gold hasn't shone now, when does it actually shine? That's absolutely valid. You know, I think we've gone through a period where theoretically money printing and a war and all of the things. So remember, gold, the thesis behind gold is that it should do well when they're debasing fiat money. Gold is the only real money. So there's that investment thesis, right? I'm not saying that's my investment thesis. I'm saying there's that investment thesis. Then there's the gold is a store of value and a safe haven. So when you go to periods of war, gold should do really well. You should find a lot of demand for gold. And yet, despite those two mega trends actually happening in scale or at scale in the last, call it couple of years, gold's been a little lackluster. So yes, I've looked at it. I've said, you know, is the thesis still sound? Does it make sense? And I'm going to actually break that down into two parts. One is that 
many, many years ago when I was even more of a gold bug than I am today. And again, I think it's maybe a little unfair to say I'm a perma bear. Uh, I'm just more of a, a cynical realist. Let's 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 maybe just use semantics. It's totally fair. It's totally, <laughs> as, as the person who knows you best in a professional environment, I stand by my view. <laughs> so I think if we look at that years ago, and we're talking about over 15 years ago, I said to a colleague of mine then that I've got this structural gold position. I'm always going to be long gold. And someone said to me, Mo, every position is an active position. You are choosing to be long gold versus some other asset class. And I took that away back then and I reflected on it. And they're right. There's no such thing as a structural gold position. I reassess that gold position regularly. The, the second part is how I look at gold. And do you look at gold and compare that to other risk assets? Or do you look at gold in your asset allocation and compare it to, for example, cash, quasi-cash, another currency, for example? And I certainly do the latter. So I would compare gold to, for example, cash or alternatives, that being cryptocurrency. And I think cryptocurrency is something we haven't spoken about. But that's been the counter trend to maybe why gold hasn't done as well in this period of rampant fiat money debasement, is that people have found an alternative or they're experimenting with an alternative. Long story short, uh, has it changed anything for me? I still hold it in the portfolio. Uh, ironically, it is kind of a structural position. I do trade around it, but you know the trading is kind of when I take a view relative to other asset classes. Tactically, where are we? Uh, the residual part in the portfolio that's more structural, that kind of sits there, is because I look at that through a risk cycle. And the fact of the matter is, we haven't gone through a risk cycle for several years. We're only seeing the downtrend in risk assets right now. So the question mark is, if gold collapses now, when all other risk assets collapse, then the investment thesis is broken. But if gold holds its own, it's actually fulfilling the role that a traditional person who would like to hold gold in the portfolio actually seeks to have it hold in the portfolio. Uh, last question I didn't answer was miners versus the underlying commodity. There's a reason why I don't like the miners. Uh, and it's not universal, but Generally, miners superimpose on the price of the commodity, operational leverage, financial leverage. And that comes with complexities like, do you get squeezed? It's the negative jaws that we always talk about on the show. Their margins are generally being compressed over a period of time. And that's the reason why you do get much more volatile performance out of some of the gold miners. Uh, it's certainly something that I tend to steer away from relative to an exposure to the underlying commodity. Yep, my... If I listened to you about the gold miners, I'd be better off. If you'd listened to me about Netflix, you'd be better off. We need to just listen to each other more. It sounds like my marriage. <laughs> Ghost, I, I think now that you've had your first shot, I, I want to throw one in there, right? And I want to say, you know, I, I know your history from your Corp Fin background, and we've worked together for a long time. But as someone who generally looks at businesses from the bottom up, you know, there are certainly times when the market tends to diverge from your perception of true value. And there is this market adage that says that the market is never wrong and that the market encapsulates all information available into what is effectively the nexus of price. Now, I want to understand from you, because it kind of ties into the gold question here, right? I want to understand from you in a stocks perspective, how do you reconcile that in your thinking? You know, the fact that an, a bottoms up analysis can show you something and that the market may take the stock there or may never take the stock there. Yeah, so that's exactly what makes the market so fun, right? So, you know, anyone who invests in small caps will have this frustration. And look at the valuation. Why isn't it getting to a decent multiple? Can't people see this in this business? And it can take years before that uh, re-rating of the multiple actually happens. And when it does, those who are finally, you know, on the register at that point in time do really well. And by then, a lot of people have given up in disgust and walked away. 
Similarly, on really big, really amazing, really exciting companies, you can be 20% down. It's like, well, what happened? You know, and it's a function of multiples reducing. It's a function of yields in the market increasing, other assets that people can buy. So the reality is, and certainly something I've learned in the past few years is the bottom-up view is always going to be my go-to because it's, I suppose, my academic background. It's where my interests lie mostly is in really understanding the underlying company strategy, the numbers, the margins, how those trends are all looking. I mean, that's my happy place per se. But what is absolutely true is that you can't ignore the stream that company is swimming in. So it really doesn't help to pick the best stock in something that cyclically is now going to do really badly. Or the worst stock in something that cyclically is going to do really well is probably still an okay investment. And so the point is, the market is a combination of all of this stuff. And it's not just the underlying fundamentals that roll up into a number. I mean, I was, I had a really interesting Twitter conversation at least a year ago now where someone said to me, it's really hard to justify why a multiple should be eight instead of nine or 10 in isolation. If you knew nothing else about a company, why should it be eight, nine or 10? It's a very academic debate. But if you knew that the company historically averaged eight and now it's 10, the market is telling you something. You don't now need to necessarily debate the merits of eight versus 10. What you need to say to yourself is, this thing is at a multiple that makes it 25% more expensive than it has historically been. Is there something to justify that or is that dangerous? Because often things will just revert to where they have historically been. And that's the really nice thing about, you know, investing in stocks where there is a lot of historical data and, and part of why I think we both tend to shy away from IPOs. You can go and see what has the market been telling me about the stock for the past five years? What multiples was this at before the pandemic? What did the pandemic do to this business and what multiples should it then reasonably be trading at now? So that's a common, you know, that's, that's basically saying use what the market is telling you. Don't ignore that. And then layer that over and above your bottoms-up analysis and then just be sensible. You know, sometimes the market is wrong. Often the market is wrong because the market is just a combination of human emotions. That's what a market is. It's a whole bunch of people coming together to buy and sell stocks. Those people have different emotions. They have different sentiments. They have different levels of information sometimes, but often not at an institutional stock type level. I mean, everything that needs to be known right now about Meta, Amazon, all of that is known. It's what people do with that information and the assumptions that they use and the conclusions they reach that ultimately makes the market. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on, right? I mean, the, the missing piece is, is behavioral. It's the whole fear and greed. And you know, I, I think that's so valuable. I, I, I like your example of the fact that you know there, there is some anchoring. The market's going to have expectations around why a stock trades, where it trades on a multiple basis. And rather than just discount that and say, oh, well, the market's right or the market's wrong, it's what is the market telling me? You know, what is the underlying sentiment, the emotion? Are we in a period of fear or greed? And I think that's the perfect overlay in terms of tactically approaching the market versus a longer term, bottoms up, maybe slightly more strategic view. Uh, also with a proviso that things continually change. Uh, that's what makes the market. Emotions change, valuations change, certainly fascinating stuff. Absolutely. So Mo, it's time for your second question or the one that I'll be asking you. So you now live in Canada. You've been there for a couple of years now, hey? And uh, having now spent a decent amount of time there, I'm curious, what would you say are the biggest differences and then also the biggest similarities to the South African business landscape? So leaving aside the stuff we all know, you know, politics, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you could delve down a bit deeper than that, what is similar? What is different? What has been interesting for you? In Canada. Yeah, <laughs> that's very interesting. I, I mean, the, the simple one, starting off very simplistically, is Canada's 
biggest, I guess, merit is its proximity to the United States, the world's largest market. You know, that's really Canada's reason for, for existing in, in so many ways. You know, Canadians will kill me for saying this, but the simple fact of the matter is Canada is almost seen as kind of this this outpost of the United States, thankfully with, without some of the bad bits. So I must, I must actually say that. But a lot of what Canada does and how Canada exists economically is intrinsically tied to the world's largest economy, and that's the US. Now, that's too simplistic. And what I mean when I say that's too simplistic is that when you're here and you're on the ground, you realize certain nuances. And I think that's really what you're asking. And that's where I was actually blown away by how many similarities there are between Canada and a market like South Africa. So I'm, I'm going to draw some of those for you. And the first is one that we've bemoaned publicly on this podcast is bad telecommunications, right? I mean, we always laugh around the fact that you're currently sitting at a different location recording this podcast because your service provider down there was doing routine maintenance on a Monday, couldn't tell you when it was going to be done, and it's still being done on a Tuesday when we're recording this. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to name and shame. The service provider is Vodacom. We don't need to. We don't need to dance around this, Mo. I'm very upset with them. And yes, that is all. So, true. so your similarities are in in Canada. It's an oligopolistic, small, reasonably closed market. And so, what I mean when I say that is, if you look at most industries, if you look at telecommunications, there are two or three large players that have closed up the entire market. And that lack of competitiveness means that we pay too much for telecommunications versus any other global developed market. I think Canada's more expensive than South Africa on telecoms. I've seen reports that suggest that. And if you adjust that for the quality as well, Canada performs rather poorly, followed by, lo and behold, South Africa. But this is not a telecoms bashing exercise. It's the same thing in banks. So Canada has a handful of very large, you know, it used to be the big four, and then it's the big five, and then extended to the big six. It's almost identical to the South African banking system in that it's a series of insiders, a small oligopolistic market, not much competitiveness, not much dynamism. Now, if we actually take that and we spill that over into a whole range of real economy sectors, Canada, for example, politically defends its dairy lobby very strongly. And so Canada pays a very high price for dairy products, for milk and butter and cheese and all of these things. And the United States is knocking on the door saying, we can get you stuff at half the price, but Canada's closed that down. And that's the interplay between, I guess, politics and business. So these are some of the nuances that kind of creep in. Canada's not that well known, I think, to many people. They just assume it's the same as the United States. It is quite different. Culturally, there's subtle nuances and differences, which again, we won't go into. But I think from an economic perspective, one last, I guess, similarity to South Africa is the resources play. And Canada has significant natural resources. Thankfully, Canada has a lot of water, and I think that's different to South Africa. South Africa is a water-scarce uh, country. But Canada has gold, and Canada has platinum, and Canada has lots of oil. Uh, contentious now in a green energy future. But Canada is a resource, or was historically a resources-based economy, and that has transitioned into now a more services and financial services-orientated economy, Property is very big up here. And those are all similarities to the South African market. So I hope that's answered your question to, to some degree. It's certainly fascinating. Well, I think my highlights of that whole answer was the way uh, your accent is starting to come through on a word like water, you know, which is our water. I can't wait for you to come and visit South Africa. And uh, we're going to go to a restaurant when I finally get to see you after all these years. And you're going to be like, how's it? Can I have water? It's going to be fantastic. That's going to make my life. 
it I blame it on I blame it on my daughters. <laughs> Ghost, I'm going to move from the onto my my next question for you before we actually just shoot the breeze on this one, but you know, in in our magic markets journey, we've really considered a whole bunch of stuff. We've considered listed investments and unlisted investments. And in Magic Markets Premium, for example, we focus entirely on global stocks. And so we, we cover this full ambit of investable asset classes. So Ghost, how has our journey on Magic Markets Premium over the last few months actually impacted your own investment appetite for global stocks versus local stocks? That's one part of the question. The other part of the question is, how has it impacted your investment appetite for traditional listed assets versus alternatives and unlisted assets? In their in their entirety. Yes, let me deal with the first part. So on premium, yes, we deal with generally the biggest brands in the world, which has been incredibly interesting for me. I mean, if you buy the right companies, they'll give you a US dollar KGAR over a long period of time of somewhere between ten and twelve or thirteen percent, you know, and these are not the riskiest businesses around. And if you go and draw a longer term chart on the JSE, you will find that even if you do not take into account the currency, if you're getting a 10 or 12% KGAR, you're pretty much beating the local market over, you know, the recent years in which it has really been struggling, you know, as a result of the broader economic issues in South Africa, certainly. So there is a huge amount of opportunity on these offshore markets. I think one of the things I've I've learned, certainly you've got to try and time the currency and the stock. It's not easy at all. You know, I'm trying to time two things. The very first show we ever did on Magic Markets was around the RAND and talking about how, you know, you've got to split the decision around the currency and the stock. So if the currency is strong, if the RAND is strong, you know, maybe take some money out, park it off, wait for the US stocks to give you the opportunity you want. And if you can get that right, you can actually, you know, really improve your return a lot in RANDs. But, you know, has it changed the way I look at the thing? Well, I think it certainly made me realize just how exciting the global markets are. I mean, I knew already, but when you delve into those companies, you really do learn so much. You know, would I rather spend five or six hours reading about Visa or five or six hours reading about a local small or mid cap? The truth of it is I'd rather learn about Visa. I do enjoy digging into the local stuff as well. So that's not saying I, I like one and I don't like the other. It's just saying which one I prefer and it's just interesting to see how these global businesses grow, their strategies coming through, how they perform, etc. So I do have shares both locally and internationally. I'm certainly partial to both. Um, the problem with the JSC, I think, because of South Africa's bigger issues, the buy and hold strategy is more difficult. You know, you can buy and hold PepsiCo because people are going to eat Doritos, I think, forever all over the world. Whereas there's not a lot of stuff on the JSC you can truly buy and hold. You've got to be careful of cycles. You've got to be careful of all the links to resources, et cetera, et cetera. And then to go to the second part of your question, which is alternatives. I mean, we've explored some wonderful things with the team from Westbrook in particular um, over the past few months. And there's some really cool stuff out there. You know, if you can find something that's giving you a gain, you know, 8%, 10% a year, whatever the case may be, and it's uncorrelated with everything else in your portfolio, that is in all likelihood going to enhance your risk-adjusted returns over a period of time. And some of those alternatives are really genuinely very interesting. So, yeah, you know, look, I, I love the markets, but on top of that, I also love business and startups and venture capital and just everything. For me, it's just a life cycle. You know, the business life cycle ends in a listed market, but there's so much that happens before then. It's just so exciting. And there's listed companies that kind of look and smell like startups, which is also fantastic. 
Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. I mean, it makes me smile so much because I always say, you know, you're not investing in this little ticker that goes up and down. I, I want people, ourselves, you know, but I want our listeners, our subscribers to understand that you're buying an underlying business. And so it's assessing if you are buying this as the local mom and pop shop versus a listed entity, you still have to understand the underlying push and pull factors of what makes the business a success or a failure and then determine how much you actually want to pay for that, whether it's a good investment. So thanks for sharing that. And I think my another point that's important is if you are the mom and pop shop, you can still learn so much about your own business from reading about others and you can apply that strategy. It's something I am super passionate about. Even in Magic Markets Premium, I always say to people, it's an educational tool. Yes, it's for people who are investing, but it's also for entrepreneurs, founders, students. So much to it. You know, there's just so much to learn. So, Mo, my final question to you today, my third and final one, is this. In Magic Markets Premium, what part of the research do you enjoy the most and which part do you find the most tedious? I, and I actually am really interested to know what this is because I don't think we've actually talked about this before. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit and tell you that I enjoy everything, of course, right? Because it's, it's Magic Markets Premium. It's, it's our baby. Um, lies, lies. Nonsense. I must say, and it's something I've mentioned on, on a previous show as well. I think I think the thing that stands out for me is I particularly enjoy the competitive section. And may, maybe it's, again, it's a product of the fact that by the time I look at the competitors, I already have a deep understanding of the business that we are analyzing immediately. And so, you know, it, it, it allows me to then reverse back out from kind of this drill down into the nitty gritty all the way back out saying, okay, great. So what does the universe look like? It's also, I guess, my natural curiosity is that research is exactly that. Where If you do research the right way, you're always unpicking the next project, the next topic that you're gonna research. So it's that lifelong learning that for me really comes out, I guess, in terms of once we've got an understanding of the business, what does the competitive landscape look like? Because it allows me to almost transpose the research we've done on one stock across an entire industry, and that might actually yield opportunities or risks that I may want to consider in my broader investment universe. So for me, if I'm building a watch list, that's how I'm using the product myself, is we do the deep dive on a particular stock, and thereafter, I can actually build in five or six other stocks on my watch list, and it gives me a tool set that I can apply. So it's really, that's the magnifying, the multiple effect of the research we do in Magic Markets that I can then take through, instead of just being on a single stock, into an entire universe of stocks. So I find that very interesting. What, what I find tedious, you know, I, I think my strength, we've discussed this as well, my strength has always been kind of a top-down view. So as soon as we go all the way down to the very nitty-gritty stuff, so when I'm, for example, reading an annual report and trawling through, for example, footnotes on a financials, on the financial statements, that's where I start to lose some of my interest. I mean, interestingly enough, that's also where you pick up some of the gems, but I think that's why the interplay between your skill set, looking at it from the bottoms up, certainly fits nicely with mine, is my top-down approach is maybe going to get me down to a certain level. Your bottoms-up approach is going to get you to a certain level. And as we overlay that, it's not 100%, it's 150% that we've actually covered. And that's why I enjoy that. So yeah, I, I think it was an interesting question. I mean, it, it, it almost ties into to my next question. And, and I, I want to throw this in there. You know, this is curiosity because yes, we discuss a lot of stuff, but now let's do it live. Let's do it in front of our listeners, right? Is we worked very closely together over the last year and a half as we've built this business. And what have been your biggest learnings? You know, what are the eye openers, either in markets or in running a business, in terms of what we've done in magic markets, as well as effectively starting and running a business with someone who's literally on the other side of the world. 
Yeah, so it's a great question, Most. I mean, I've had more than one startup at a time and a baby. It's been a lot of startups in the past couple of years for me. Uh, Magic Market's been one of them, of course, and certainly a favorite of mine. Like, I really do love what we do. So uh, working remotely, I think, has been easy, but we knew each other for the years before that, which makes a big difference. So I think working remotely works really well if you already knew the person. I think if you're just getting to know someone, it's definitely doable, but I think it's just that a little bit harder, personally. Something I've realized, the modern world is just so magnificently set up for this. There are so many wonderful online tools. I mean, we're recording this on Riverside, which is like Zoom on steroids. It's affordable. It's wonderful. We use Canva a lot, which is, you know, it turns even guys like us into almost uh, graphic designers. Not quite, but our stuff looks great, and we do it all ourselves with the help of this tool. So I think one of the things I've learned and realized in modern business now is the tools exist to make a huge difference and allow people to operate a really low cost model, which is fantastic. I think the other thing that I've taken out of the past couple of years is when you are partnering with someone, it's really important to actually figure out naturally where your strengths and interests lie and then not be scared to go with that. You know, we're good at very different things actually and we are interested in very different things when it really comes down to it. So Mo and I will naturally tend towards what we enjoy the most. You know, on a Magic Markets premium report, I'll do the final like piecing together of the writing. Yes, Mo will edit it, but the bulk of the writing is coming from me, whereas the technicals is exclusively Mo. I mean, I don't even touch the thing. I just read it and learn from it each time. So I think when, you, yeah, when you've got a partner in business, you need to just figure out what those relative strengths are. And I think you'll also be willing to have, at times, tougher conversations. I mean, Mo, we've had to do that at times as we figure this thing out. And I think it's part of the process. I think if you believe that will never happen, then you're dreaming. Um, there's always going to be stuff that you maybe disagree slightly on or times where one of you ebbs and one of you flows. You know, you each have your own personal life. Stuff goes on, good times, bad times, everything in between. So what have I learned in the last year and a half is I suppose when you're building a business with someone, it's a function of two people's lives and you have to be willing to figure that journey out together. I think that's a big part of it. And uh, play to your strengths, you know, and partner with someone who has different strengths to you, because otherwise all you're doing is you have the same quality product, you now just have two mouths to feed. Rather try and build something that is much better together and uh, and hope that that works, which I like to think Magic Markets has done and is doing. So, yeah, that would be my answer. Yeah, thanks, Ghost. I, I think that's fantastic. And to our listeners, you know, I, I want to throw this out to you guys. You know, let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of some of these answers. You know, engage with us. We are... We're real people. We're not just talking heads. So if you have questions that you'd like us to answer, I think that could be quite fun for a future show, Ghost, is, you know, let's collate a whole bunch of these. Pop us an email. Go go and uh, go to our website. It's magic-markets.com. You know, send us a comment on the site. Send us a comment on social media. And we'll try and collate some of those questions that maybe are burning in your minds. I've enjoyed this. I think this has been great fun. Uh, Ghost, I hope uh, you've had some fun on the show as well. Yeah, I have. And I would definitely echo that. I think that's an awesome idea. Send your questions through. And when it's just Mo and I again, we'll do a show based on that. And uh, from next week then, I think we're welcoming back, uh, you know, Anbro, Westbrook, Karenia kind of in a row. Uh, looking forward to that. Always love learning from all three of them. So until then, thank you for listening to Magic Markets. Go and check out Magic Markets Premium. You'll find it at magic-markets.com. There are now well over 30 shows in the premium library. It's an incredible amount of insights for 99 Rand a month. So have a look. Give it a try and uh, you may well surprise yourself with what you can learn and how quickly you can learn it. So we'll see you next week. Thank you and cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor 